Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Forum for Philosophy. Subscribe for weekly discussions of science, culture, politics and the arts from a philosophical perspective. The Forum is a non-profit organisation and our events are free and open to all. You can support our work via our website and Facebook page. Hello, I'm Shahid Abari and I'm your chair for the evening. Um, uh, I can see lots of you are LSE Forum regulars. It's lovely to see you all. And um, historically, forum events are congenial and friendly. Sometimes they have been more fraught and people have actually sought therapy after an LSE Forum event. But <laughs> this one, I think, uh, will not be so. I think, uh, I think it's going to be really thoughtful and reflective. Um, I'm sure you've read the blur, but I'm going to introduce the event anyway. Aristotle declare that all men by nature desire knowledge, but is knowledge also a way to well-being? And in this event, we are planning to examine uh, if the task of philosophy is to, to share bright ideas or to find better ways to live. And should we maintain a distinction between thinking and therapy? Our speakers are Beverly Clack. She's a professor in the philosophy of religion at Oxford Brookes University. She's been involved in ESRC-funded seminar series specifically on emotional well-being and social justice. And her publications include Freud on the Couch and most recently, about to come out, I think in January, uh, How to Be a Failure and Still Live Well, a Philosophy. I think we all want that. Um, John Skorupski is a... Is it Skorupski? Yeah. The past. John Skorupski is a philosopher whose main interests are epistemology, ethics and moral philosophy, political philosophy and the history of 19th and 20th century philosophy. He's best known for his work on John Stuart Mill and his study, uh, The Domain of Reasons. And Molly MacDonald is a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Her interests are in theory, sometimes literature, psychoanalysis, and her first book was on Hegel and psychoanalysis. She's currently working, working on a project about the concept of inertia. We've been making lots of jokes about how you work on a project about inertia, but you can ask her more about that. So uh, what will happen is that I will interrogate our speakers first of all, we'll talk amongst ourselves, and then we'll open up to the floor as soon as we can, and we promise to do that. Um, Beverly, I'm going to start with you. So my question to you, is philosophy of use to our lives? That's such a great question, and it's a great question precisely because you've added to our lives, because I think we're encouraged a lot of the time to try and think about, is philosophy of any use? You know, I mean, I can see one of my old undergraduates sitting there, um, and I suspect his experience would have been um, being asked repeatedly what use philosophy was going to be to career, work, making money. And I think to frame it as, is it of any use to our life? Because that's a much bigger thing. That's actually how we position ourselves in life, how we make sense of our lives. So I'm a philosopher of religion. Um, and I come at this question very much from this idea of how we make meaning, how we make sense of things, and also a philosopher of religion who's been interested in psychoanalysis and, again, how we might use that as a way of making sense, of finding meaning, of perhaps being less bothered by the things that happen to us, which might sound a bit of a strange idea, but I think... Um, life is, frankly, a lot of the time quite miserable and upsetting um, and sad. And how we actually 
grapple with those kind of feelings. Um, I think there's a role for philosophy in that that sometimes is forgotten and neglected. Um, and I think, not wishing to stake my colours too much to the master at this point, I think there is a sense in which philosophy does offer us a kind of therapy for dealing with some of those things. Do you have things in, in mind when you say some of those things? What kinds of things do you have in mind? What the things that trouble us? I think things like loss, um, death, bereavement, um, I think also things like failure, a sense that we might not be achieving or living up to particular pop patterns of behaviour that we think we should, we should live up to, or particularly that we don't feel that our lives are successful, often understood through things like money and achievement and attainment. So I think those kind of things often feel like they're throwing us off course from some kind of ideal life that we should be having. Um, and I think one of the things that philosophy can do is recalibrate our engagement with those things and make us think a little bit differently about what the focus of life might be. And when you say philosophy, do you mean particular ideas that philosophy gives us or the activity of engaging with philosophical work? Wh which is it? What is it? Yeah, that's, again, an excellent question. I'm just trying oh, to get the answer. Very good. <laughs> um, I, th I think that idea of the practice of philosophy is something that I'd really want to highlight, that there's something about that careful, critical thought, attentive thought, that can really open up a different space, a different way of thinking about our lives. Yeah, and, and when you say um, philosophy might, I'm paraphrasing, uh, might uh, uh, facilitate us into feeling, facilitate us feeling less bothered, that seems almost counterintuitive because <laughs> philosophy seems like such a serious business. What do you mean by that? Mm. I suppose I mean in the sense that we can become very self-obsessed quite easily, actually. I think we live in a culture that encourages us to be self-obsessed. And it may be that actually one of the things that philosophy is great at doing is making us think about our lives in a much broader context. Um, so we see it perhaps against um, a whole, I don't know, well, millennia of thinking about thought or life or what it is to be human. And that that might just make us think a little bit differently about our own small existences. I, d I don't want to be prescriptive and demand all the cures, but <laughs> do you have an example in mind of a particular kind of philosophy or a... Or a yeah, I mean, I think that the um, ancient Hellenistic philosophers are very good, actually, at getting us to think a little bit differently about our place in the universe. Um, so on the bus here, I was rereading Seneca on the shortness of life. As you do on which, the bus. Yeah, which as a, as a kind of a middle-aged person running towards retirement, I kind of think about a lot. Um, and I think that idea that there are texts that might help us to think about our lives in this broader way, I think it's, it goes beyond what we do in the classroom, actually. It then helps us to think a little bit about how we might live and that's a really important thing, it seems to me. You know, is there a way of engaging with this fleeting existence that might enable us to live richer lives, lives that are less caught up with perhaps the anxiety of looking like the right kind of person or, um, you know, actually coping with some of the, the, the ordinary 
I was going to say, ordinary tragedies of life, actually, as well. Yeah. So I, I, I think I would be a bit scared to read Seneca, that he feels like a very difficult kind of philosophy, but is this kind of philosophy for life for everybody, or is it for Completely. philosophic... Is it? Completely. I mean, I would say that if you read Seneca, I think he's actually somebody that you can understand. I think he's somebody who um, isn't caught up in technical language necessarily, but is, is encouraging us to just think a little bit more seriously about life. Thank you. Molly and, and John, did you have any responses to that or any, any thoughts? Well, I'm going to continue about Seneca. <laughs> <laughs> okay, more Seneca. Right. Already more Seneca than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing about Seneca, but about... Um, crash. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it's sort of about the idea of consolation, then, that mm. turning to philosophy as a as a consoling form. I mean, in the in the various ways in which you've painted the part of human human existence as one that is of struggle and tragedy. You know, part of existence not just being about um, how to live, but also how to cope with um, death in that sense. So, do you see it in that in that sense as a as a consolation? Or yeah, I, I mean, I think partly. I think it definitely opens up that space where we can think about our lives differently. And I suppose that might be the consolation of it, that it, it says, OK, things might not be wonderful for you, but actually that's not the sole pur purpose, the sole meaning that we might attribute to our lives. You know, it, it, it can be so much richer if we find ways perhaps of embracing some of these things rather than feeling that they are to be excluded from how we, how we actually engage with things. And I think that's one of the things that philosophy is really great at doing, is it opens up different ways of thinking about our lives. It almost provides a space for doing that. One more question for me, and then I'll stop pestering you to give me all the answers to my problems. <laughs> but um, the philosophy you're talking about, is there a distinction there between... Seneca and the self-help tradition that we're seeing you know, currently part of the big publishing machine at the moment. Is there a distinction between something like Seneca and the self-help literature? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I definitely think so. I think one of the things that slightly concerns me about some of those sort of self-help guides, look, I'm saying this is somebody who's just written a book with a title that sounds like <laughs> a self-help guide, which <laughs> makes me feel slightly nervous. Um, but, I, I mean, I think the trouble with the self-help guides is it's almost like you follow this and you will get to an end point. You know, you follow my prescription for how to turn your failure into success, for example. Um, and you're going you, that's what you're going to get. Um, and life is not like that. And I think a lot of those sort of self-help books almost suggest that, you know, you can follow this. This will shape your life. You can do it in this way. And I'm not convinced that that's really what the ancients are doing when they pursue a model of philosophy as something like, a, I suppose, akin to a spiritual exercise, that it's more about how you train yourself to think in perhaps different ways. But, you know, how you might then engage with your life could be very, very different. Um, I don't think there are easy answers. I think that's the bit that I think philosophy suggests there aren't easy answers. Um, and that, I think, is what makes it a much more exciting thing to engage with than just going out and buying a, a pile of self-help books. I hate it when philosophy doesn't give you easy answers, but I think that is the point, isn't it? Yes, you're right. Um, John, let's move on to you. If, if philosophy is useful to our lives, uh, to what purposes should philosophy be put? 
if it's useful to our lives. Well, I mean, philosophy is a very big subject, and there's lots, it's got many mansions, but there's certainly um, a kind of philosophy which goes right back to the ancient world, which is exactly as you were saying, to do with consolation, bringing peace, serenity. That's very much oriented towards the person themselves. Whereas, you know, if you're a utilitarian, you might think the important thing is to change the world and make it better and so on, even if it doesn't bring you peace and consolation. But uh, if you call that tradition the tradition of the consolation of philosophy, right, which you, that is uh, actually the title of a book by Boethius, which he wrote mm. in prison, right? <laughs> so he needed some consolation. <laughs> but um, uh, you can start off uh, certainly with the Stoics, of whom Seneca was one, but also the Greek Stoics. And then there's the skeptics, I'll explain what they've got to do with it. Or even going further back to the pre-Socratics, or 600 BC, something like that, Parmenides. Um, and uh, I may have time to mention him. But uh, uh, so first of all, just the skeptics. I mean, here's a way to achieve peace. You just come to the conclusion that there's no reason to believe anything. So if, if, um, if uh, global... Uh, you know, if environmental degradation is worrying you, well, you know, the skeptic will tell you there's no reason to believe it is uh, happening, and there's no reason to believe it's not happening. Right? So just calm down. That seems a very... <laughs> that seems a rather, you know, not, not a lot of mileage in that one, but <laughs> nevertheless, a lot of people have been attracted to skepticism for that sort of reason. And, I mean, skepticism itself is a pretty hard formal discipline. I mean, it's not just, I don't believe in anything. But anyway, I'm going to leave it there. The Stoics, who I was going to say a bit more about. So um, there the consolation centers around the ancient question of can a good man be harmed? And um, a lot of people worry, you know, is virtue going to uh, help me in the world? And uh, what they wanted to say is the good man cannot be um, there can be no injury to a man who practices virtue. Of course, that led to some pretty counterintuitive moves, uh, including that you know, happiness and pain are just what they called indifference. Their happiness is a preferred indifferent, and pain is a dispreferred indifferent, but basically they're of no importance. <laughs> Again, not terribly... Um, uh, not terribly... Uh, a lot of mileage in that, it seems to me. But what they did do was they emphasized the idea that virtue should be seen as its own reward. A cliche, but it's the stoic view. Um, you don't have to have a sort of moral government of the universe that's going to make sure that every time, you know, every time you do something good, you get a brownie point, and every time you do something bad, it's wiped off the board. Um, but um, just to mention the... Uh, the pre-Socratics, Parmenides in particular. Now there you've got something, to my mind, much more extensive and ambitious that goes on right through to now, which is this idea that there's more than one way of seeing the world. Um, so in Parmenides' terminology, there's the way of seeming, which all of current science would just be part of the way of seeming, and there's the way of truth, and the way of truth is that which stands constant, incorruptible, cannot be destroyed, and so on. 
So then Parmenides, it's a goddess who's telling Parmenides this uh, in her chariot. Um, and uh, so the way of seeming, which is actually a bit of a sort of pun, I think, in, or, or ambiguity in Parmenides, it could be the seeming path or the path of seeming. You know? uh, that is what the scientists try to do, and uh, of whom there were some at that time, you know, early pre-scientists. And um, here's the correct story about that, but of course it's only correct in a limited way. What you need to do is to understand that everything is one, that it's incorruptible, can't be changed, and that you are the one. <laughs> and once you've grasped that, of course you're going to feel quite calm. We hope. <laughs> or else you're going to get off the drugs and stuff. <laughs> but uh, that actually, although I'm joking about it, continues as a view right through. It's there in Hegel. It's there in Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein, of course, I'm just going to stop with Wittgenstein. <laughs> Wittgenstein famously thinks that philosophy in general is therapy. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, he means by that something more than Parmenides. I mean, what he means by that is that we get into all sorts of troubles um, in our philosophical thinking, knots, tangles, and what the philosopher should be doing is unpicking it all, un undoing the knots, or his famous um, phrase, showing the fly the way out of the fly bottle. That's a great <laughs> metaphor. Um, so uh, at that level... All the philosophy that he did in his later period was meant to be therapeutic, but it wasn't therapeutic in the sense... Well, I was going to say, it wasn't therapeutic in the sense that it's going to give you an insight into the oneness of the whole and therefore give you serenity, but I think probably he did associate it with some kind of serenity. Could I just read a little passage oh, from him? Of course, right. yeah. I thought it would interest you. So bear in mind Parmenides and the way of seeming and the way of truth, right? Here's Wittgenstein in a preface to one of, one of his books. Um, this book is written for such men as are in sympathy with its spirit. This spirit is different from the one which informs the vast stream of European and American civilization in which all of us stand. That was in 1930. Um, that spirit expresses itself in an onward movement in building ever larger and more complicated structures, the other in striving after clarity and perspicuity in no matter what structure. The first tries to grasp the world by way of its periphery, in its variety, the second at its center, in its essence. And so the first adds one construction to another, moving on and up, as it were, from one stage to the next, while the other remains where it is, and remains where it is, notice, and it tries to what it tries to grasp is always the same. So I think Parmenides would have agreed with that. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I love that quotation from Wittgenstein about the fly. I, feel, I feel like we should do a whole event on philosophers and flies, the Socratic gadfly, and I can, I'm sure the audience will have others, but it, are you saying that Wittgenstein is the best fly to get us out of the fly bottle? Yeah, and I think I'm saying... Um, and Wittgenstein isn't at all fashionable in philosophy nowadays, by the way. Um, there's the usual, you know, down and then... Uh, the J-curve, the Nike curve. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, what his view was, which is not by any means orthodox now, 
was this really the only point of doing the philosophy of language, which was one of his main preoccupations, was to sort out these confusions. And somehow that would give you that perspicuity, that clarity. It wouldn't take you anywhere. You wouldn't have discovered any new results. You wouldn't get a Nobel Prize. But you would have a kind of um, a, a, a view over the whole is what yes. it means, right? Yeah. A, a calm view over the whole. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because I, I, I love Wittgenstein also. And I, I think Übersicht. <laughs> and I, I think lots of people are increasingly reading Wittgenstein, but I don't always find him clarifying. And it does occur to me that one of the jobs of philosophy, or maybe not its jobs, but one of its effects sometimes is not to give you clarity, but to take your head into your hands and feel even worse and to, to not know how to live, actually. I wonder what you, you think of that. The idea that sometimes philosophy is about 90% true. <laughs> yeah, in, your ex in our experience yes. of reading it. Yeah, I'm, I might test you all on this about the philosophy that doesn't help us to live well as well, I, which I think is the counterpart to that conversation. But Molly, I'm going to move on to you first before we do that. Um, I want to ask you if is philosophy therapeutic, to take the title of our event, is philosophy therapeutic? And what do we take that word to mean? Mm. Well, I, I was having to think about when um, sort of prepping for tonight and thinking about, you know, what do we mean by therapy now in the sense of there are so many ways in which we think about, you know, spa therapy or, it, you know, this, this notion of um, sort of self-care. But, you know, to me, therapy is a, a healing after an illness. Um, and perhaps not always after but during, you know, if you think about the sort of psychotherapeutic model, it is a, is a model of um, healing amidst a kind of suffering. Um, you know, that's something that we turn to when something doesn't feel quite right or if something has gone terribly wrong. So to try and conflate uh, a philosophical mode of thought and investigation with um, therapy, as I, from the position I'm coming from, feels a difficult task for me. But... Um, in the sense that philosophy is a way of um, orienting the self and, and a way of, or reorienting the self in a sense. Um, again, a, a place we might want to turn to when things feel like they're going wrong. Um, but also uh, therapy as a kind of transformative um, notion so that it's about a process of transformation. And in that sense, I, can, I started to see how um, we might think about philosophical work or philosophical thinking as a process of transformation, as a mode of changing um, ways of thinking, which then have the knock-on effect of changing ways of being um, in that sense. And, um, but it, it made me think, too, something you just were both speaking about. What if we're transformed in the wrong direction? <laughs> you know, the, the ways in which you might pick up something that jars you, in a, in a sense, in the, wrong, um, in the wrong way into modes of, of thought that aren't helpful. Um, and it got me then to thinking about the notion that therapy ultimately is a relational, should be, or is a relational um, and intersubjective um, activity in the sort of more clinical sense of, of relational and intersubjective. And I think the, the pitfalls we get into with philosophical thought and um, interrogation is that it becomes a kind of self-analysis and the kind of the binds that we might get into in that process of analyzing the self. Um, so I think the, the, the important part for me is that it's a, only as good as it is in the lived world, that um, we can have all of these thought experiments in the way in which we, we exercise um, our minds in that sense and feel a kind of transformation. But if it doesn't get back to this notion of how do we live and live with others, um, 
it feels kind of pointless to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and really, it was, I mean, Hegel has taught me a lot in life, but, <laughs> um, but it was the notion that, we, you know, we're the, the most famous b being stuck on the master-slave dialectic in, in the phenomenology. Um, and then he moves into stoicism and skepticism, and these moves where the, the master-slave, the sort of struggle to the death, um, turns into self-consciousness basically unbinding itself from the world and the world of others, but culminates in this notion of, of the unhappy consciousness, which is at a kind of amazing moment in Hegel where he basically says we cannot be, um, we cannot unbind ourselves from the world of others and that, that there's a need for uh, not just another self-consciousness but a kind of counselor figure to come in and, and take us back both to ourselves but to tie us back to the world. Um, so yeah. Yeah, oh, um, I'm t I feel derailed by you, just like the thinkers you were, the, the idea of reading a philosophy that derailed you, because I think I have been asking, is philosophy of use to uh, our life, but it should be perhaps is philosophy to, uh, of use to lives mm -hmm. and our living with others as well. Mm. Are there particular philosophers that you have in mind? Hegel, obviously, but... Others. I mean, he was good up to a point, but then... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, his, That's his, the final judgment, I think. He was good yes. up to a point. <laughs> his, his mode of thinking um, <laughs> sort of neglected a lot of other people um, and also was, you know, in the 18, early 1800s. Um, so who else... You're asking, so who yeah. else do I yeah. turn to in that? Who helps us live with others? In that, in that mode yeah. of being? Yeah. Um, well, re I mean, recently I've been, I've been thinking about the way in which... Um, Actually, it's not who we think of as philosophers, but people who are sort of, people like Julia Kristeva in her earlier work, Strangers to Ourselves, may thinking in critical modes that are not simply um, a sort of systematic philosophy, but a mode of thinking about how to be in, in yeah, to be in that world. So I've just been reading her earlier work. Um, who else? I mean, yeah. who, well, who do yeah. we turn to? Think? But, but Beverly and Joe, maybe I'll invite you to respond to Molly. Are, are we, are we, have we been sidetracked into thinking about a philosophy that helps us to live and we really should be thinking about a philosophy that helps us to live with others? That is the most instructive But you can philosophy. do both, can't you? Can we? Can, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that there's actually something really, I think Molly's really <laughs> opened up a really important aspect about what it is to practice philosophy, that it isn't or shouldn't be an isolating discipline really, that there is something about the kind of conversations we have, I mean this is such a great format for that, where you're actually with other people and you're investigating and you're thinking and you're kind of moving around an issue as well and opening up space for an issue that perhaps otherwise wouldn't be wouldn't be looked at and that perhaps there's a kind of dance that has to go on around how philosophy might affect our own engagement with our own life but then also how it can open up the way in which we relate with with other people um, again when I was sort of preparing for this I was looking again at um, Lawrence Hattab's wonderful book on nature um, and ret eternal recurrence and um, there's one little piece where he steps out of the kind of philosopher as abstract thinker who's um, just going to engage with the theory and says something about why he's always found, and these are his words, Nietzsche therapeutic, oh, yeah, yeah. which is fantastic mm -hmm. because he says actually it's, it's the bit where you, you are kind of recognising in another philosopher something about yourself. In his case, he talks a lot about his own depression, his own sense of alienation, and that he reads that in Nietzsche. And then at the same time, Nietzsche's provoking him and pushing him away from precisely that kind of um, 
as this set of mental states. So there's a sort of a dance that almost goes on even when you're reading a philosopher, that you are engaging with them in this kind of conversation. And then obviously there's that more social engagement with what yeah. it is to, mm. to do and, and practice philosophy. John, what do you think? I, I'm mindful that you're our, our mill expert too, of course. And that well, I was just going to say that Nietzsche was spectacularly bad at living with other people. <laughs> 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 we probably only could do that author uh, authorial kind of yes. uh, relationship. So, yeah, that's Doesn't true. show that he wasn't good at showing <laughs> yeah. I'm just a joke. But, uh, um, so, but uh, I mean, just to expand on that, I, I, I do think that a lot of philosophy is actually teaching you how to put up with others. Mm. You know, from Kant on the sociable unsociability of people. Mm -hmm. You know, how they can't not be with people, yet they can't be with people, mm -hmm. right? And similar Sartre, Clos, um, an awful lot of that in philosophy. And who's to say they're wrong? You know, I mean, maybe the deepest truth about human beings is they can't get on with each other. They just are islands. So that's well, it's not, though, quite right? a, <laughs> well, let's hope not, but it's quite a strong strand in philosophy yeah. that that is so. Yeah. Um, but uh, then there's, of course, um, you know, if we get back to kind of sensible people like Mill, <laughs> we obviously that's have discussions it. about, uh, um, find their discussions about, you know, the, the ethics of socialism, the ethics, of, and so on. Yeah. And that's just sort of straightforward, down-to-earth social philosophy. Yeah which, if it's good philosophy, presumably might help you to live with people, might help you to think, let's say, oh, gosh, I now see that socialism is the right answer. I'll go off and live with this little community of socialists. You know, that's perfectly possible. In fact, it has, it has happened. But um, and I just another sequence of these two points. Um, I, at a very literal-minded level, if philosophy is your thing, you typically can't stop once you've started. And um, a little group of people who can't get on with each other in any other way could spend hours together discuss discussing some trivial question like what is the semantics of names? Or, <laughs> you know, um, is time real? And uh, that's not a trivial question. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they find it very hard to stop. It's just a very together kind of yes. thing. So at that level, I mean, I don't know, you, can, you can't transfer that. Yeah. And anybody who doesn't like philosophy finds these sort of things hideous, you know. But uh, once you've pressed the philosophy button with someone who's a philosopher, they really want to talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I So think I'll shut up. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Exhibit A. Um, no, we should talk more about the, the practice of philosophy, but I just want to pick up on, the, on, on, on Mill again, just because um, I want us to talk about well-being at a certain point and the well-being industry, which feels both adjacent to philosophy and yet also at odds to philosophy proper or the discipline of philosophy. But I wonder what you make of Mill's principle of happiness being perhaps the version of uh, living well or, uh, or, or the instruction of, of the philosopher's instruction on how to live, happiness being the ultimate value, how that seems to me to have had the most traction when we talk about what it means to live well. Is that... Is that because of Mill? Is that in spite of Mill? Is that, or is the version of happiness that we're all supposedly striving towards uh, a denatured form of Mill's happiness? Mm. Uh, well, I think part of it is just because happiness is such a uh, many-sided idea. 
Um, so it gets into modern philosophy and certainly into Mill as a translation of eudaimonia. The Greek, and eudaimonia might just mean the good for you, whatever that might be. Um, and so then it's trivially true that what you ought to seek for your own good is eudaimonia. Um, but then happiness can mean pleasure in the absence of pain. And um, it's far from obvious that pleasure in the absence of pain is the only thing we should be pursuing, even for our own sake, let alone for everybody's. And, um, of course, Mill thought, yes, that's it, but you must understand pleasure and pain properly. And then we get lots and lots of discussion of that in Mill and in critics of Mill. Yeah, I, I, and, and Molly, I, I, I raise that ha idea about happiness because it seems to me um, perhaps the dispute that, um, that John was joking about um, Nietzsche not being a sensible philosopher, I hope, and Mill being a sensible philosopher, but there, there is that, that batch of um, largely bad boy existentialists <laughs> you know, who were doing the opposite of yeah. telling us how to live well, who were yeah. making us feel terrible about ourselves. I'm just remembering... Um, Camus telling, asking whether he should kill himself or have a coffee. And you think, have a coffee, Camus. <laughs> that is the answer, right? But uh, there is a version of philosophy that is not necessarily, is the sort that makes you s take your head into your hands, is not necessarily a guidebook to being happy, happy isn't there, I, I, I think? I totally agree. But also, um, when reading Mill, though, I always think, well, who's whose idea of happiness are we talking about? And the idea that that is that then somehow part of a larger utilitarian uh, project that then gets politicized into, you know, the wellness industry that you're about to bring, you know, come to um, in that sense. And the, that something about the existentialist project or the projects of not living well are kind of bucking up against that notion that we have to be happy in all in the same way. Um, and I think that that's... That to me is where the um, where the put your head in your hands is helpful because we have to somehow see see all the complexities and not just the this this notion of what happiness is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. What do you think? You're nodding. Yeah. Well, I was just I was just thinking. I was about to say happiness is very overrated in some in some ways, mm -hmm. um, and it was reminding me of. Freud's comment right at the beginning in the studies on hysteria that he writes with Joseph Breuer where he says, well, what's the point of doing therapy? Um, it's to turn hysterical misery into common unhappiness. <laughs> and I kind of like that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, is it... Is it because there's not a kind of an overselling of what it's going to achieve. You know, it's not going to make you feel absolutely fantastic and you're going to be skipping down the street or something. It's actually more that it's going to locate it in just the ordinary stuff of, of being human. Yeah. So I kind of like that. Because yeah. there seems to be something about it that feels real to me. And I'm never very sure. I mean, I, th I totally take your point that there are varieties of ways of understanding happiness. Mm. Um, I think it's just that the unfortunate thing I suspect, particularly if you're talking about the wellness industry, is that there is a very specific idea of what it is to be happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sh yeah. Should we talk about the wellness industry? Just because there's been a spate of exposés at the same rate as there's been an enormous inflation in the wellness industry, um, part of which is, you know, 
yoga and mindfulness, mm. but part of it is this, this self-help industry and a kind of re an exercise of reading to somehow self-improve. Um, is this about acts of self-care rather than therapeutic? What do you make, what do philosophers make of the wellness industry? I don't know anything about it. No? <laughs> That's just the way it should be, right? Philosophers, nothing, yeah. Are you conscious of it on our horizon that people are reading this self-care, a kind of almost a, a pseudo-philosophy, not to be derogatory, but mm. a kind of attempt to think philosophically without quite philosophy proper? Yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I, the, I think there is, there is kind of an obsession with ideas of how to maintain health as well, which is, you know, in some ways perhaps linked, linked with that. Um, and I wonder about why that is. You know, what is it about being well, being healthy? And I can't help wondering whether a lot of it gets caught up with ideas of being productive, mm -hmm. being able to be in the workplace, um, yeah, you know, meeting your duties to, to the rest of society or something. It doesn't, it, it, it always feels as though it gets caught up with something around what it is to be a good human being or a good citizen, perhaps better. Um, so I'm, I, I'm always a bit cautious about that. And there seem to be readings of it where it's just not very, just doesn't, doesn't feel, again, doesn't feel very real in some ways about people's yeah. lives. And actually, if anything, are trying to force them into ways of understanding which are very much fitting with a particular contemporary model of what the capitalist subject should be like. But yeah. Mm. Holly, do you think? Well, I feel, um, I just was going through my mind while you were speaking, is that notion of the creation of a disease in order to sell you something that can cure that disease. Um, a lot of the wellness industry stuff sort of feels that way because we're talking about an industry in that sense. Um, I'm very aware that tomorrow is World Mental Health Day, and there's, yeah. a, there's a sense in which um, the notion, and I've seen all over town recently, what if everybody was in therapy? You know, there's a um, sort of therapeutic apps and just the way in which therapy itself is, a, is an industry. Um, and... And I think that that has uh, beautiful things about it, and it also has the things that come with the notion of what an industry is about it, too. So I think to be careful about, um, especially not an expert in either wellness or <laughs> the therapeutic industry, um, to be careful about how people need to take that into their own lives to the extent that it does serve them in living their lives in a better way. Um, but that I think that this notion of transformation, that we're, we're thinking about what yeah. therapy might be, um, to what end, uh, you know, to what is the purpose of transformation? And I think that you're saying, you know, this idea of turning oneself into a perfect mm. um, subject, a capitalist subject, or whatever it is, um, what's the motivation behind those yeah. modes of transformation? I think I asked the question because I've noticed in recent years a spate of people who we, we, we all, lots of us would admire and esteem philosophers mm. who are writing general audience books yeah. that are, if you look at the back at the barcode, it says philosophy slash self-help. Yeah. And it seems to me very intriguing that it's philosophy that is the discipline that is on that cusp. And I wondered if that is somehow truthful to philosophy's origins, um, the, the Hellenistic and the, 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 the classical tradition, or whether this is a new development and why it's come about. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, John. Well, as I say, I have no idea what the wellness industry is, <laughs> but uh, I suppose that um, Stoicism, just to get back to Stoicism, is a course in coming to understand that you know, the imposters of 
success and uh, whatever the other imposter was and uh, and of pleasure and pain are just imposters that they don't really matter very much that what you need to do is the right thing and if you do the right thing everything else is calm you know so i mean i don't know maybe maybe that's the wellness industry but uh, i find it quite an attractive line of thought although somewhat idealistic yeah well, idealistic is a good word. One of the other words, you mentioned consolation, Beverly, and the word you used, John, was serenity, mm. um, which is always often a hilarious word for me if any of you are Seinfeld fans. And there's an episode where George seeks serenity now. Um, <laughs> it's an infamous episode. But, um, very not serene way. <laughs> in a not very serene <laughs> way. Yeah. And when I'm driving with my partner, I'm often screaming to myself, serenity now. Yeah. Um, but if we were seeking not happiness but serenity in philosophy, where would we find it? Who would give us serenity now? <laughs> well, you can get serenity by any intellectual activity which is engrossing. So it could be scholarship on the coinage of the Hittite Empire. In that sense, any philosophy can give you serenity. But it's not as though, other than the people we've mentioned and some other people who we haven't mentioned, but it's not as though the whole range of philosophy is, is concerned with therapy or serenity. Yes, Far yes. from it. I mean, you're talking about a very small aspect mm. of philosophy. Yeah. And of course, there's lots of philosophy, which is the opposite of serene. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking that so, that so much of the philosophers I read and loved left me with a very unquiet mind. In mm. fact, that seemed to be the best philosophy. Mm -hmm. what, about, what about you, Molly? Serenity? Oh, serenity. I don't know about serenity, but um, <laughs> what I was going to say was thinking about... Um, if I can just get back to this notion yeah, of why of it's philosophy slash self-help. Um, and because I was, I was been reading Heidegger again recently, but the idea that the, the, what are the big questions that this form of philosophy is asking, that self-help is sort of trying to ask, well, a, a certain version of self-help is trying to ask the similar questions. They're big questions, and they, there's a certain um, path that each author is going to go down. But it feels like the, the sort of naughty problems of being human, and that's sort of what, you know, about the, the naughtier problems of death or loss or grief, but um, the naughty problems of what is serenity, like what, the big questions of, of human existence. And it feels like those two things are conflated, that philosophy asks those, and so does self-help, like, yes. um, in that sense. So, but I think that, and Heidegger's point, I feel, would be you can't, philosophy's going to point you in a certain direction, but you have to do the work yourself. And I feel like that's the, the turning to the self-help books or whatever as a, as, as a therapeutic model you can't get outside yourself in that sense, and you, you know, the, it's hard work. Um, so it's not that either either register has any answers. Beverly, <laughs> yeah. well, I like that idea of it being hard work in that sense. You mm. know, that idea of what because it always strikes me with therapy as well that what therapy does is it doesn't necessarily make you happy. No, but it yeah. kind of takes takes the stuff that concerns and, and bothers and troubles you, that sort of maelstrom of emotion, and it places it in a context where you with another person mm. is, are able to look at that yeah. as some kind of object, and that that almost then enables you to look at it differently again. But it's really hard. It's not mm. something that is, you know, I think they try and do checklists now of how effective a therapy session is mm. if you if, if therapy well, I think we're not sure that therapy is provided anymore on the NHS but mm. that where you were supposed to tick off whether you feel that you made any progress in the session well I think that's a very odd way of looking yeah. at it because it's not really ever going to 
do it in quite that way, is it? It's going to be more of a... But again, that's the sort of instrumental model of yeah. what therapy is supposed to be or yeah. philosophy is supposed to be in that sense. Um, yeah. And I think that's where the overlap with philosophy for me comes. It's something about that work, that work that happens in the space between people. Yeah. yeah. John, I feel like you, you're, you're slightly more sceptical having talked about sceptics in the room, um, uh, in, in terms of whether you think that, f that therapy, whether the ends of that is well-being, happiness, serenity, or consolation, that is not the ultimate or the only objective of philosophy. Is that your sense? Or is it, is it do you think it is the major well, objective sure of philosophy? for sure it's not the ultimate or only objective. Of I mean, it's not even the ultimate or only objective of Wittgenstein who says that what he's trying to do is therapy. Yeah. What he's trying to do is to, well, show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. He's trying to stop you from getting agitated about questions like what is existence, you know, by untangling the knots and leaving you with the, not exactly, not that you don't any longer have that question, but the, you're still in the same place, but... It's very hard to explain what Wittgenstein thinks. He's so <laughs> elusive, especially as he adds, by the way, all well, this is meaningless. Yeah, yeah. So the really important things are meaningless. I was going to actually read you something that he says about safety. Uh, this is from a, a lecture on ethics, the only one he ever gave, I think. The main content of which was that every ethical statement is completely meaningless. But um, uh, in the course of this, he, uh, he talks about a feeling of safety. He talks about three feelings you might have. First of all, the utter puzzlement that there is something. The second one I can't remember. <laughs> the third one, the third one, is feeling safe. And he says, um, "We all know what it means in ordinary life to be safe. I am safe in my room when I cannot run over when I cannot be run over by an omnibus. I'm safe if I have had whooping cough and cannot therefore get it again. To be safe essentially means that it is physically impossible that certain things should happen to me." And therefore, it is nonsense to say that I'm safe whatever happens. Again, this is a misuse of the word. Safe, as the other example was, a misuse of the word existence. But he thinks that these are the things that are of absolute importance. Mm. The feeling of safety. And I mean, actually, the feeling of safety, it seems to me, what the Stoics were after. Mm. That whatever happens, I'm safe. In that sense... Uh, that seems to be genuinely therapeutic. It might even have something to do with um, the well-being industry. But, I mean, all of these people, uh, Wittgenstein, the Stoics, I didn't think they thought it was... I didn't think they thought it was easy to get to that point. Mm -hmm. in, in the spirit of Wittgenstein's um, dismissal of ethics in general, <laughs> um, I, I think I've got a sense of... Well, he thinks it's the only thing that's important. It's, it's just that it's meaningless. Right, it's me right. The, the meaningless of it. I can <laughs> think of the philosophers who um, might be instructive, or you might think are, are instructive for life, but who is, who is the most useless? Whose advice would you <laughs> never take? I mean, I think Camus' advice you probably shouldn't take. <laughs> yes, that sounds yeah. that's but, I mean, I think, but in that weird, perverse way that something um, ridiculous can be somehow illuminating. Well, it depends on if you're going for advice. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing. I, d I don't have anybody at the top of my head, but I, w I also don't think I turn to philosophy for advice. Um, just because, again, it's that, that notion of what do you do with that? 
in yourself. So I don't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. He'd, he'd sort of be he'd be up there. Yeah. If it's easy, you can ask. Tell me who you would go to for advice. I was thinking I probably wouldn't go to Wittgenstein for advice because he was notorious, wasn't he, for giving people advice that wasn't necessarily good for them. Well, he, was, he was a person who had disciples in a rather excessive way. Mm. Yes. So that's not one of his nicer aspects. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think who I You can mull, mull over my conundrum while I turn yeah. to the audience. I've got 50 other questions, but I'm sure okay. you have questions. So we have a roving mic. If you wave at me, we'll send the mic over to you for once. Hi, so just one thing I observed um, was that when, in answering the question, you only referenced Western philosophers, mm. and I was wondering if that was just coincidence, or is Eastern philosophy not seen as credible, or is useful particularly in asking this specific question? Great question. And the one at the back? So I apologize if this is vague in advance. Um, so I, I think John mentioned the, the phrase good philosophy, so the question is, what is good philosophy? And related to that, um, you mentioned the idea that philosophy should be about the lives of others. So why is that? Is that inherent in what philosophy is and what it embodies? Great. That wasn't at all, Linka. So two questions. One about Western philosophy, and I think that's a really um, precise rebuke, actually a good one. Uh, uh, let's see if we've got an answer to it. So why has our philosophy been Western and are we discrediting Eastern other, or other traditions of philosophy? And the other was, what is, what is the definition of, of good philosophy? Yeah, to the first one, it's absolutely valid and it's, um, it's just my area of, of, of scholarship or expertise and I wouldn't want to speak about anything I don't in intimately read um, or have, have written on in that sense, but it's a, it's a totally valid question. My experience running these events is that there is almost always a question from the audience about Buddhism. And so many of the philosophers we talk about eventually turn to Eastern philosophies or faiths, which seems to me very interesting that somehow they, they've exhausted something of their own tradition and they're looking for a different answer. Um, but it's always, a, a, I think, a, 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 a pressing question for us why our philosophy is so European quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, I don't know enough about... Um, well, either Chinese or Indian philosophy. But, I mean, it is said by people I trust that Buddhism, in fact, has very many similarities to these Greek pre-Socratics and so on, and that the sort of idea of achieving oneness. Um, yeah, so <laughs> were I to know more, I'd, um, I would be happy to tell you, but I don't. And the former trying to run a few more events... Uh, thinking about other traditions of philosophy as well, tr precisely to address that question. But the other question is, what is good philosophy? Which I think was addressed to you, John, because you used that phrase. Did I use that phrase? Good philosophy, was that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here I am to remind you. I can't remember. Well, obviously there is good philosophy, <laughs> and there is certainly bad philosophy. <laughs> but I don't know that, you know, what's the criterion of good music? Well, what about what about for all of you? What what qualifies? Just tell me in a, a few sentences. <laughs> <laughs> what, what qualifies for a, a philosophy that some that is worthy of the name? Is it um, seriousness? Yeah. But even then, I mean, you can be serious in a jokey way. I think uh, Nietzsche is a very good example of that. Actually, yeah. the only philosopher I can think of who actually has me out of bed, falling out of bed laughing, and he makes very good cracks. I mean, he says. Um, he has this list, for example, in one place of people um, he hates. You know, it's like a <laughs> colour supplement. Um, so there are various people. And then he says, Mill, 
for his offensive clarity. (laughs) (laughs) In the same vein, he says, man does not desire happiness. Only the Englishman does. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but I mean, he's very serious about these things. And that's what makes him a good philosopher. Well, no, that's not a... Being serious is not a sufficient condition of being a good philosopher, but it is a necessary condition. But what, do, what do you mean by serious? I mean, I... Ah. Ah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Well, taking a question and addressing it in a serious way, mm. which doesn't involve wasting everybody's time. Yeah. What about you? What makes for good good what what is good philosophy? What what criteria does it meet to qualify as, as good? Is it therapeutic? Is it Well, I think it, it sort of gets back to the um the question that you asked Beverly at the beginning, is that uh how how does it to live? Um so yeah, for me that that seems to be the the criteria of, the good. of good philosophy, which is to say it is I mean, not to repeat myself, but it is about how to be better at living in the life that you're in and transforming it if it's not working in that sense. Um, The quote that I like, which I think I'm going to get wrong, so I apologise, is from Epicurus, the one that's um, empty. I think it's empty is the philosophy that doesn't ameliorate any human suffering. I don't think that's entirely right, but um, it's that idea that there's something about it. I think perhaps that does go back to that idea of something, something about it being serious at some level, that it well, is yes, a grappling yes. with something that's... And that it might that's actually a completely offer, false it might, it might actually <laughs> offer us some healing for some of the things mm-hmm. that we're, we're encountering. And I suppose healing can take many forms. Um, but I like that idea that it isn't just using words cleverly mm-hmm. that it might actually have some kind of more yes more grounded purpose yeah it's I interesting like hearing you say that when we think about some those of you who studied philosophy or are still studying it that that isn't always one's experience of being taught philosophy that philosophy sometimes seems caught up in condite or abstruse arguments or pursuits of logic or um internecine tangles, that the idea that its purpose might be to ameliorate suffering mm. in some way seems... Well, that can't be the bad. purpose of all philosophy. Come <laughs> on. Any more than it could be the purpose of all chemistry. Yeah. And <laughs> do you might it? Some, right, so I'm, th- I'm trying to think of... OK, so I'm a, I'm a philosopher of religion, and I confess I came into this discipline through theology, so I'm really coming in through a discipline that's quite different in some ways. But if I think about some of my more hard-nosed, analytic... Uh, philosophy colleagues Um, I wonder if there isn't something about the precision of thought and the the detailed inquiry that doesn't at some level enable you to get out of perhaps get out of yourself and that might be a way in which you could overcome a certain kind of suffering that you are yeah do you see what I mean I mean I don't think goes for Hittite's medals yeah yeah, that's true, and that might be that might be an, a, another point about well, what is it then to talk about philosophy as a subject that lends itself to wisdom, because that seems to be the distinct, yes. possibly the distinctive part. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, don't well, know. that is a question in itself. Why 
would philosophy's cl claim to well-being be exceptional mm. above all other arts or disciplines or interests? Let's get more questions. There are loads now. Brilliant. Let's get the two there at the back. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. I'm keen to know whether people feel that mythology has any place in philosophy and or therapy. And the question at the back there. It's World Mental Health Day t tomorrow, and I think we need to contextualise this conversation a little bit more in the present. In order to understand forms of therapy today, and philosophically speaking, we've got to understand the philosophy of pain today. Does that make any sense? And that in order to provide some kind of philosophy as therapy, we've got to understand the pain of the present what do you think the pain of the present is currently? And how can philosophy appease this pain right. okay. today? Okay, if I, I may, I'll try to paraphrase that a little bit. Um, so one question about mythology, um, and then I think this is a question about whether philosophy can somehow capture or paraphrase, articulate the pain of the present. Um, and what, what that, those pains might be might be a big question for us to answer, but we can try. Um, I mean, both brilliant questions. Um, the first one, I think, yeah, I think mythology can. Um, I, uh, again, thinking of Seneca with Medea and the idea of anger and the destructive nature of anger, that, that story of Medea and um, the kind of destruction that is wrought through her... Um, her sense of betrayal, I think that is a really good way in which that, that might be grappled with. So I quite like that. But again, I'm, I'm a philosopher of religion. I'm going to love myth, aren't I, really? But I think that the question about what is the pain of our age is a brilliant question. Because um, it, it strikes me it might be anxiety, generally, that idea that we can't, that, that it just feels that we are kind of unhinged and, and coupled from all the things that we thought did make, make sense of love. And I don't know whether it's... It, it, it does feel a little bit like that. So, um, I yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of curious now to find out what my yeah. fellow panellists think. So I don't see... I mean, I think you can do philosophy through mythology. Um, but unfortunately, you need a lot of talent, not to say genius. But, I mean, the person I... The pre-Socratic I referred to, Parmenides, was... And I, actually, all the pre-Socratics were very much into mythological ways of doing philosophy. So the, it's a goddess who comes and takes him in her chariot. She gets to a, to a great arch through which the strong bolts that hold the doors together s open up, and then she says, there is the way of truth and there is the way of seeming, you know, and so on. So uh, I don't know whether that's what you had in mind, but it would be rather difficult to do that in 2019 in a typical... English philosophy department, but um, it could certainly be done. As to, um, hey, well, w so what do you think is the pain of uh, the present? Like, is it anxiety or? I believe um, we need to ask our children, our nephews, and the people who are maybe young adults and teenagers um, how they experience life how they philosophize about, about life today. And whether it be related to globalization, social media, it'd be interesting to answer the question, 
in these contexts, in these immediate contexts. Does that clarify? Does that answer your question? Can well, uh, th there's two halves to that. I mean, uh, the first half, should we um, ask children and so on what their views are on philosophical questions? Actually, I'm an enthusiast for doing that, both in terms of my own daughters, but also as a sort of idea about what could be done in primary school education. Because, um, as someone said, philosophy is simple, but not easy, right? And um, simple questions like, how do I know I'm not dreaming? I mean, I'm sure that an awful lot of children have had that sort of question, or many others that I could come up with. But what I don't see is, this is part two, what's the connection with pain? Because therapy seems as a kind of a way to appease a pain, a solution, so to speak. But in order for, for us to have therapy, we need to understand the nature of, of our pain, you know, of our pain right. today. And does that, anybody in the yeah, audience okay. maybe have any insight I, on I, this? I think yeah. Molly hasn't answered your question yet. We, did you want to have a go answering that question? I think it's a, it's a really incredibly difficult question to, to answer, um, and one that I can't even pretend. I'm not a practicing clinician. I, you know, I'm a, an academic, but I think it's a really, and we're, I'm very mindful that tomorrow is um, is marked as, as that day. Um, and there's obviously, you know, there's it's, there's an article every day about the mental health crisis that we're suffering in this country and and, and around the world in in ways. Um, I think that um, because the therapeutic model that I am most um, in both in tune with and an expert on is, is sort of psychotherapeutic. Um, but it, that brings with it a whole host of issues of who has access to that kind of one-on-one um, kind of, uh, -on -one therapy. I think that this is why the, the, you know, the sort of posters about therapy on your phone or the app in that sense. But I'd, I wouldn't want to sit here and pretend that I had an answer for you that would solve the question of the pain of our present moment because it's obviously, it's acute um, in, and a lot of people are feeling it in various ways. Um, but that I'm not sure that philosophy is the answer either, by the way. Um, but I think that we all have to think um, more, more rigorously about what we're doing to ourselves and other people. Um, and that's, in, the, in that sense, that, that is philosophy's job. Thank you. We've got two questions up there, and then I'll come back down. Hi. Considering that modern therapeutic practices <clears throat> have their roots in philosophy, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy is derived from stoic practices and even mindfulness comes from Buddhist meditative practices. Uh, won't you believe that actually modern day therapy is philosophy which has been institutionalized and you have taken bits of philosophy which are actually effective and then providing it in a formal regulated platform to the mass media for, uh, because to the mass public, because philosophy earlier was uh, could could have different forms and could be helpful or not helpful. It depend it depended on who you were talking to, who was your uh, uh, who was around you, and what kind of philosophy prospered in that area. But therapy now we test it out, we see whether this form of thinking actually helps you, and then we go and suggest it to people. Great, thank you. And there was another question along. Let's get both of them at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the differences between the goals of philosophy and therapy. Um, and it might be quite simplistic, but um, I think potentially a traditional way of looking at therapy is the goal of it is to, um, to heal you like you were talking about before, so you don't need therapy anymore. Um, and I was wondering where that leaves uh, philosophy as therapy and what role it has. 
Two great questions. So one about the institutionalization of philosophy in therapeutic strategies and treatments, and the other about goals. Um, whether yeah, whether you can be healed by philosophy and then you stop reading it, maybe. I got quite interested in Freud's ideas on cure or, or whether you could have a therapeutic cure because he's actually quite careful around that and his last one of his last papers he's actually that's the whole question really and he's mindful of the fact that well he, he recites one of his cases where a woman has left his practice seemingly cured of her hysterical Ill illness and for a while she holds up perfectly well and it's all it's all great and then she gets an ailment goes to a doctor falls madly in love with him and goes straight back into the behaviors that she thought she could so I think even Freud felt that there were these kind of questions around the extent to which you could ever have that that end goal would it, would it really be possible which I think is sometimes kind of overlooked a little bit um, I mean I'll be, I, as a a person who makes their career out of philosophy and gets paid for it, I really hope there isn't an end point for philosophy. That would be a bit disturbing. Um, but it's a really good question. I mean, what is the point of therapy? Actually, I'm going to look, now I'm going to look at Molly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, I think the, the relief of acute suffering seems to be right, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. therapeutic model. So you have the, the models of CBT or mindfulness, which comes in many different forms, both sort of self-practicing, but um, the relational model of, a, of being in a room with someone else who is, who is both um, becomes a container for, your, um, for, the, for the suffering and hopefully lessens the acute, um, the acute symptoms in that sense, um, but the, the analysis terminable and interminable essay that you're talking about, um, that it's about the way in which we fight we fight ourselves all the time against against um, whatever a cure might look like. So the notion of resistance to that uh, therapeutic cure is part mm. of that paper, mm. too. So, um, but it sort of gets back to that notion of what what acute pain looks like and what it, how do we live with and through it. And that seems to be the the proliferation of models of dealing with that. Um, that philosophy is I don't know if philosophy is finding its home in all of them, but. Um, that's why I, I sort of circling back around to that in, the intersubjective nature of therapy that is not in a philosophical text necessarily. So I think we have to be very careful about talking about a cl clinical space and the activity of reading and thinking and perhaps being in a seminar room or a, in a lecture or whatever because I don't want to in any way pretend that they're the same thing because they're not, mm -hmm. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's really important to be careful about that. John, did you want to add to those? Well, I'm just thinking about that. They're interesting questions. Um, so I certainly, uh, I mean, I agree that uh, some of these, uh, like, co you know, I forget the name of it, the cognitive... Uh, behavioral therapy. Behavioral therapy, right. Uh, has affinities with philosophy. Um, uh, I think the thing is that philosophy really has a different aim and if it's going to be therapeutic, it's going to be via their aim. And the aim is truth. Uh, now, you know, if you're someone like Freud, you think that somehow or other getting the truth about yourself will be therapeutic. That's a kind of founding axiom, which could be totally false, I mean. At any rate, I wouldn't want to 
say to people, do some philosophy, read the Stoics, and you'll feel better, because it seems to me they might feel worse in all sorts of ways. I mean, philosophy um, can be rather unpleasantly gripping subject. So, I mean, I'd like to say a lot more about these questions, but um, I'll just stop there. Yeah. There is, I think, there is something about, I remember people, friends of mine who've been in therapy saying that you feel worse before you feel better. And that's also how I feel about philosophy sometimes, that you feel a lot worse. It seems a lot more opaque until it gets clearer. Um, and maybe there's something in that process too, I think. Um, more questions, please. So this sort of follows on from the comment you've just made. But it, it strikes me that consolation and transformation are almost opposite things. Mm. Um, and that sometimes you, you need a level of pain in order to transform. I wondered what your thoughts were on that. And, and did the panel have any experience of philosophy as uncomfortably transformative that in the long run was helpful in some way? Great. And then there was a question at the very back there. Oh, hello. This might seem as a very amateur question, but um, I, I had this question before coming here, and that was what exactly makes something philosophy? I mean, is it just about academia, or is there a line between thought and philosophy? Like, like how do you define that, basically? Okay. That might need another three <laughs> forum uh, <laughs> events, but we'll do our best in the time we have. And the one in the end there, please. Thank you for the question. Uh, hi there. I, I, did under I understand that philosophy is about knowing thyself. Um, we don't seem to have touched on that just yet. Uh, you know, I mean, in specifically. Um, I think really the, the essence of the problem and the philosophy of therapy is unlearning learned limitations. We all have those in one way or another. And, and then just to add one other thing to it, um, the things I would do, I do not. And the things I would I do not I would do whatever. Can't, I, you can recall that phrase for me. Yeah, yeah. but that's a really important one. Uh, and I think uh, looking into that is a, is a philosophy in itself. Okay, thank you. So three great questions. Uh, one about the, that we need a level of pain and examples, if, if you were willing to talk about transformations um, that have been consolatory. Or, or transformations through pain, perhaps. And then what makes something philosophy, which I might refine a little bit, maybe working out the distinction between philosophy and therapy, and uh, knowing thyself as a philosophical edict. Uh, uh, when you were um, pitting, or not pitting, but making uh, consolation and transformation as opposites, then I had, um, well, I had to pause and think, is that true? Because then I was thinking... Um, so the idea is that consolation is a kind of tamping down or a, a kind of making feel, um, I mean, and it's very consoling in that sense that, that through that you don't then um, feel anything again. Or it's, it's a, but it feels to me that consolation is a, is a, can be twinned with transformation in the sense that you are living through whatever it is you need to be consoled about, but that you come, that, that it, it has to happen at the same time in some senses that, um, to, because deep, deep um, suffering is almost how do you see your way out of it? So to find a consolation during that time, I think that's the, in a sense, the, a therapeutic model as well, right? To to be like you are living through that suffering, and therapy is not consolation, but that there is a sense that the consolation is there's somebody, somebody there, <laughs> who's also living through that. Yeah. I don't know, that, yeah, yeah that, that they're sense. sort of they're not opposite ends of things, but they somehow are 
live together. Um, yeah, I mean, just on the, picking up on the, you know, the transformation through reading a philosopher who kind of punches you in the head almost. Um, when I get stuck in my own writing, I always turn to Nietzsche because he frustrates, irritates, mm -hmm. and annoys me as well as makes me laugh, makes me smile, challenges me. And there's something about that kind of provocative engagement that can be really helpful if you're trying to think differently about something. Do you want what he wants? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> a... hairy. Yeah, not particularly. No. I don't think I do, and I think that's probably it. I think it's more that sense that he, he provokes you, right. and I kind of like that. I like that idea that you're being... You're not being handheld through something. You're actually just being... Right. Yeah, and he doesn't want you to want what he wants. He thinks you're a bad Nietzschean if you, yeah. if you, well, he if you do. He yeah. probably thinks you're part of the place, <laughs> and therefore he doesn't want you no, to want what he wants. but he's also saying yes to life. I mean, I yeah, think that's the, the version yeah, of Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only from a very small minority of oh, people. I don't know. I think that is the case. He, yes. is, he is the, <laughs> the go-to philosopher for so many people who right. haven't done philosophy degrees. He is the, the touchstone. He's yeah, the person they read the most, which is very telling indeed. What about that edict, knowing thyself? I mean, f the Freudians here would say... You know, knowing thyself is, in a way, both the task of Freudian psychoanalysis and also the impossibility, mm. right, that we cannot know ourselves, that we deceive ourselves. Mm. Well, I suppose it's that the, if the task of, of a philosophical excursion is to find out the hidden parts of yourself that you didn't know existed or to get some articulation of something that uh, Christopher Ballas would call like the unknown known, the thing that you feel and have in you, but you have no words to, to articulate, that you turn to something else to, to have um, for that language in that sense, so that unknown known becomes a known, and mm. then you're just on to the next bit of unknown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I, the temporality of knowing thyself, I think, is a pretty tricky one, that you can do it for a minute and then it's gone, <laughs> and then, you know, do you ever get to that sense where you fully do? No, because we have an unconscious, <laughs> believe in that, um, which I do, so... It's constantly throwing things at you that aren't, aren't um, something that you recognize in yourself. Yeah. I know there are lots of questions, but we have run out of time. What I'm going to invite you to do is... Uh, to go back to my tricky question, who's the most... Who should, we not, who should we not take advice from, and who should we take advice from of the philosophers? Yeah. <laughs> you can answer either, whichever's easiest. Give us a reading list. Who should we go away and read? Help okay, us who should we give, take advice from? This is, and it goes back to the point that was right at the back about what is philosophy. Um, and so I'm going to say Michelle Adurf because she says we shouldn't align ourselves with any particular school of philosophy or philosopher. She says what we should commit ourselves to is practising philosophy, actually asking good questions and thinking about how they might find answers so I like that as an idea for that's that to me is a good piece of advice that's a great answer mm. we're gonna hide behind that because <laughs> yeah. I feel like, um, but there is a sense that I don't I don't actually turn to anyone in particular it's sort of when I have when I have particular questions or a kind of burning yeah. um, thing I need to get to I, I sort of search around for that and see who comes up yeah. so that feels I mean I, I would say 
Judith Butler, I'm always trying to. Do we yeah. do we get to count her as a philosopher? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the other thing, right? That who gets to be counted as a philosopher and who's just a critical theorist or who's a cultural yeah. theorist? So I think it's a really tricky um, because yeah. probably most of the people on my list wouldn't be, you know, straight up. Oh, welcome to this panel. <laughs> what do you think, John? Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> for a start, I think any decent philosopher would say, "Well, I'm not here. I'm not in the business of giving advice." But. Um, who should we take advice from and who shouldn't we? Uh, so I've got to say, we shouldn't take advice from Nietzsche. <laughs> and uh, we probably should take advice from Socrates, so that gets me back to whoever was talking about know thyself. Um, I mean, he's the traditional source of advice down the ages for non-religious philosophers. Um, and by the way, Nietzsche thought that he was a horrible fellow who brought in the triumph of, the, of slave morality. But most of us find it <laughs> actually quite a nice sort of morality. So I would go for uh, Socrates both as a, you know, rather in the sort of what would Jesus do? What would Socrates say? Um, and I think you should definitely read Nietzsche. He's great fun. But uh, I know. You should take advice as much from him as much as you should take advice from your to totally blasted friend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get those T-shirts made. Who, what would, yeah, brilliant. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I, uh, I need to tell you something I've forgotten, which is our next event, I think, is about home. Um, but as you know, the forum is a brilliant and various uh, place of discussion, and you're always welcome. Um, you can pick up our leaflets and go to our website, or you can follow us on Twitter, um, and we hope to see you at that one. And finally, would you please join me in thanking our marvellous guests, John Scott, Molly McDonald.